In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Take up your cross. Let not its weight fill your weak soul with vain alarm. His strength shall bear your spirit up and brace your heart and nerve your arm. A wise statesman once said in the days when there were statesmen and wisdom was fashionable in political services, a wise statesman once said that the only thing to fear is fear itself. Well, if the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, then the loss of the fear of everything else is surely the fulfillment of our journey from this world to the next. The letter of St. James, so controversial in so many ways, it put the fear of God into Luther, of course, who tried to get it removed from the text. He translated it faithfully anyway. Brings fear front and center. And the fear he sets in our hearts is the power that the tongue has, this extremity of our body, on that whole system that is put in place to respond to fear and get us to respond without even thinking about it. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, he says. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. Words are weapons, he is saying. Whether spoken in anger or shouted in contempt, whether texted or tweeted, words have power. The power to soothe and inspire and encourage, to bring people together, to craft solutions for common problems, and the power to wound and attack and destroy, to drive people apart, turn them one on one another, and let the devil sort out the details. Setting on fire the entire course of life, setting people's lives and careers up in smoke and ashes with a firebrand plucked from the flames of hell. These pyrotechnics, of course, provide much entertainment. I suppose they constitute what passes for political discourse these days. And they take people out and take them down, whether in the corridors of power, high on the hill, or in the hallways of our high schools incinerating the reputations of our leaders and of our children. Words. And the inspired author in this word is not demeaning language to merely functioning as an instrument of war or reducing all communication to rhetoric. No. James makes clear, however, that when we speak with authority and we speak with passion, we must bear in mind the power of the tongue. No human being can tame the tongue, he says. It is a restful, restless evil full of deadly poison, a restless member that 
reaches our restless hearts as we try to wriggle away from the one who made us at every possibility and pursue all manner of our own desires. We might be grateful now that we fight so many wars with words and not with other weapons. Once we've taken a stand on something, of course, we have to defend it. We can't back down. And words take on a life of their own. Uttering them is one thing. Inscribing them online guarantees that they can get around the world. And what goes around comes around, often in seconds, comes back to haunt us, often over years. Soon our enemies attack us from every side, defamation and profanation, all from something that maybe once was meant as affirmation. Innocently sharing something, even someone else's words that seemed to have something to say, all sweetness and light turned to some other use by someone who heard them differently. And words spoken in anger have a way of getting under our skin and impelling us into reaction and then into action before we have moments to think about it. The secrets of polyvagal theory are safe with me, but I'm going to channel them for a few moments because these texts lead us right under the skin and into that system called the nervous system which connects the brain in our head with the brain in our heart, with the brain in our guts and in our groin. It takes only a few milliseconds to kick that system into action. And when fear is the motivating force, it is appealing to the most ancient part of our nervous system. We are our evolutionary history as we walk around. And just as James says the tongue has the power to separate human beings from reptiles and other mammals, so the nervous system takes us right back to our reptilian origins. Fight or flight, of course, is that primary response. And neurons begin to fire and adrenal chemicals are secreted and we are responding physiologically. And this is the key. Our body is responding, not our emotions, not our head. Words may come through our cognition, they may briefly touch our emotions, but ultimately words trigger responses which are so deep in our being that they operate involuntarily. And just as evolution has worked itself way to build up this mass of gray matter in our cerebral cortex and give us the means to inhibit the powerful impulses of fight or flight that come from our gut when we are threatened, when fear is put into our hearts, give us the need, the possibility to reflect, to think, to share, to contemplate before we act, to pause before we press the send button, if you like, we have to acknowledge that the power still resides with that in the brainstem we call the reptilian brain. Now, reptiles have other ways of reacting as well, and evolution gave them one other means of response to fight and flight to danger that we share as well. And when the danger, the threat becomes the threat of life or death, a reptile plays dead. Go to a pet store. They're not moving. <laughs> They're just sitting there. They're not dead. They're terrified all the time, as are many other beings in pet stores. Contemplate how still they stay. 
And that happens to us too when we reach the conclusion that we're facing a threat that we simply cannot possibly overcome by running or by staying. That deep response isn't the only response we've been given though. And as I have said, the new vagus, the new vagal nerve, which goes through the body, connects all these visceral organs with the best that our cerebral cortex has to offer, is the move that seeks social interaction. It seeks calmness above all, it seeks a deep peace, it seeks to bring excitation to a very, very dull roar. And in a measured safe place where conversation is possible, where the deepest values can be shared without threat, it seeks to bring people together in peace. Just as you'll see a litter of newborn puppies clinging together with the mother or even you'll see your dog or your cat, well, on a rare day your cat, but certainly your dog, come and cuddle up close to you when you're sitting, watching something on TV, not the news, I hope, but something that might give you some calm at heart. These responses, again, which I bring out in such detail, are bodily responses. Our willpower has no control over them, they're physical. We can learn, however, to use our bodies and to move our perception of where danger is and where danger isn't into this part where we can reflect and inhibit the fear response. We can seek to convert confrontation into cool conversation and passionate partisan ardor into compassionate and open dialogue, always seeking that shared space that will ground us. There's much talk about safe spaces these days, but let me hasten to add that the safe space we seek is the one within. You cannot really craft them in the world. If you can't carry your safety with you through whatever the world throws at you, you have very little hope of bringing safety to anybody else. So this is much of the task we face as Christians. Learning to use words to understand what words do to us and learning to deal with fear in a way that allows the peace that only comes from God, the peace that only God offers, which is not what this world gives, to take its place more and more in our hearts and in our shared community when we gather. It's not enough of bridging divisions with papering over the cracks, but working to build a bridge into the next world through which that peace can come into the world now. Now, having said all that, we have, of course, a few words from the Lord himself. And as we would expect Jesus, who can walk on water, to be the one to pour the oil of peace and divine unction on the troubled waters, we might be taken a little aback by the words he utters today. They are certainly designed to bring his disciples up to speed with where he's going, but not without creating not just shock and awe and fear, but putting them into consternation. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected and be killed. Challenged on this, like you would, he comes back even stronger. 
If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Hard to read those words in any other than a threatening way if we're really listening, and usually we're not. We think a cross is this pretty little thing that hangs around our necks. Of course, it's an instrument of execution and a horrible execution at that. And it's meant to provide us with the same response. It was meant to provide them, to throw them beyond flight or fight or flight into that place, if you like, where they literally go numb and let go of any hope they have of getting out of this alive. Now, that's not exactly the script that a leader of a movement would typically hand to his recruiters. But he will repeat this invitation again and again until he goes to the place where he himself will live this invitation out, dying most ignominiously on the cross. And so will his disciples, one by one, follow their pattern of equivalency. Somehow in this whole progress, we too, understanding that we may not have to face as literal a cross as they do, still must deal with the central message he is trying to give us. If you want the peace of this beautiful space where you share one another's love, cuddle together in warmth, and enjoy my glory forever and ever, you're going to have to deal with the fact that you are hardwired for fear and for revenge. And you've got to deal with that somehow. God's yes, in other words, will be the last word. But not until we have somehow taken to heart and to our guts and to our head the no that he is pronouncing on our gut responses. On the fragile and fallible bodies we inhabit, and on the habits of growth and the ways of life that life in the body has brought about to defend us from the harsh realities of life with one another in an unredeemed creation to give us the possibility of surviving by win and lose confrontations, but not of living in the vision that our Lord has for us at all, the vision in which he established this world in which all creation lived in peace. No fear, no threat, just delight in one another's presence. We have learned creaturely ways which are based on power and how it can be used and abused. God wants to take us home, but he wants us to put aside and put behind us all the strategies that have kept us in the here and now, constantly traveling that axis which links fear and anger keeping them in perpetual action and reaction, always sharpening our tongues for the next game of challenge and repost, the earthly accrual of honor and avoidance of shame, which defines our fears and delimits our hopes. What he's saying to us in the end, brothers and sisters, is that try as you might, you will not reach that state of sanctification, this side of glory, no way, no how. The good news is give it up. You don't have to. The bad news is for you to get 
to that state of bliss which you are promised and get that new resurrection body which is your inheritance, this old body has to die. Not just as a clay pot, a shell, a husk that we carry around, but as the seat of so many of the impulses that help us trash any possibility that the kingdom of God will get a foothold here. Our sinfulness goes so deep, it's not a matter of choice or making elevated, educated decisions. It's beyond that. And the grace of God is to say, I will grant your wish. That body will die. So, good news. The win-lose scenario, which we take for granted in this world, lives itself through the journey to the cross, through death, and into a new world in which losing somehow becomes winning, weakness somehow becomes strength, and the foolishness of the cross becomes wisdom. All the things that tense our guts and hold us down and make us prey to the manipulations of the unscrupulous ones who exploit our fear instinct will be purged away, burned away by the purifying fires. The death of the body and the death not of the soul, but of the ego, the false self, which also somehow clings in here, telling us that it is who we really are. It is not. When you get to heaven, Thomas Merton once said, there won't be much of you there, will there? <laughs> it's a beautiful thought. When we get to heaven, the we, when I get to heaven, the me that I'm going to find on the other side is going to have left most of the me I know down here behind, or so I pray. There won't be much to work with for starters, but I'm trusting that our God can do something with the little sanctified soul that I will be taking to the other side. That's all God needs to work with. He offers us, however, one thing more than preparing us for the next thing to come. Like this world, like this life, but different in so many ways. It is not simply a matter of taking up our shovel and once again planting that tree. Taking up our creaturely occupations where we left them off in a better world. Planet Earth version 2.2 if you factor the flood in as well as the fall. He has so much more than that in store. So much more than we can imagine. But it's so much different than we can imagine. This is what transcendence is all about. It's not just peace. It's not just having a good time without stress. It is something so different. What we can do right now, then, is not just wait, keeping our heads up, and not just work even, doing our best and keeping our heads down, important by that, as that is. Rather, we are to seek and seek again, again and again, that place of peace. Going to prayer when we are stressed, as opposing to going right into the strategies we will use to get our own back. Beyond the taunting and the triggering and the barbs, which cause us to, to settle old scores in spite, we learn not to take the bait by praying. 
The best prayer I know of, those old prayers we've been given, are those that we call the breath prayers. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Breathing in deeply and quickly, breathing out very slowly. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. As long as you want, as short as you want. Letting the body take over to bring the body back into line. Well, enough of defensiveness. Whatever we have done this side of glory, we can look forward to the end of all the crisis we bear here. Our hymn gives us a taste of what's ahead. And I'll finish with this. Take up your cross then in his strength and calmly every danger breathe. Twill guide you to a better home and lead to victory over the grave. Amen.